Welcome back to another episode of DSLR Film New Podcast, where Devin joins me from Chicago to talk about, uh, well, news is actually pretty thin this week, guys. We've got a few uh, attachments, cable control management, some quick release plates, and one new lens that's a little on the strange side. But first, Devin, before we get into anything in the news, what have you been up to, man? Oh, my goodness. Uh, well, I started going uh, full-time at another studio, uh, which another probably job? means lots of... Yep, another one, uh, which probably means lots of engineering work with not the right equipment. Uh, like, for example, they have a, a Blackmagic 4K switcher, and they refuse to buy a switcher panel for it. And keep in mind that if you own a Blackmagic switcher, there's a company out there that refurbish, refurbishes old Grass Valley switchers okay. for about $1,700, which is really cheap for a physical interface for a switcher because I think Blackmagic starts at maybe 3000 or 4000 So $1,700 is not terrible, and they refuse to pay even that. So I end up with uh, one of those um, X-button panels that I program and macro into being a switcher. Uh, because they won't spend more than a hundred bucks for something to switch cameras with and bring graphics on and control B-roll. So uh, it, it'll be, you know, another interesting engineering challenge. I guess I should call it like engineering on a budget. But uh, that's been with me and totally buried with uh, a lot of post work as always. Oh, man, post work. Uh, that's the worst. I took it easy Including making graphics for you. I'm supposed to make a graphic for the intro of this show, hey, and I haven't even touched that yet. You volunteered I for did that volunteer, because I, I want to. I did not assign any No, tests. you didn't assign it. I volunteered, and I want to, and then I realized, man, I still have like three other After Effects projects sitting in my folder that I got to get out. So I actually took this weekend off. I did a little bit of hiking. I didn't book any jobs at all. You know, meandered around. I had napped on the couch after having a massive breakfast burrito from, uh, uh, you know, uh, shoot, a whole, a, one of the grocery stores makes these awesome, I think it's like Whole Foods, makes these awesome burritos that are like a pound, and they're six ninety nine, wow. but they are so good. Like, and, that sounds like a Chipotle-sized burrito. Yeah, and you finish it and you go into food coma. True story. Um, <laughs> I slept slept all afternoon in front of the fire, and now I'm up again to do the show, and then I've got some housework to get done, but uh, nothing exciting on the film front. It's a pretty boring week and with that in mind i think it's time to get on to the news time for the news first thing on the list here is actually a really interesting sort of cable management system this is a gear tie if you're not familiar with these they're basically a uh, zip tie or not a zip tie actually more like a twist tie that's industrialized so i've got one right here and you can actually see uh, what it looks like this little guy is just a nice wraparound bendable sort of rubberized deal that can be twisted onto any kind of cable. Uh, hold your stuff in place. And they're very small. They're bright, so they're not easy to lose. And they're very affordable. You can buy a 20-pack of these in 6-inch, 3-inch lengths. I believe this is a 3-inch version uh, for around $15 or so. Now, I like having cables completely organized and, and tied up to things. And something like this actually provides an option for wrapping your cables to your rig. I wanted to talk to you, Devin. What do you use, since you use bigger rigs than I do, uh, for your <laughs> cable management? Do you have any kind of like uh, bungees or anything like that? Sure, yeah. Actually, what I use is uh, something like this, which is uh, essentially it's just a rubber band with a small piece of wood on the end of it. Uh, but it, it, in certain sizes, in certain situations, it provides a very tight fit 
And because it's being tied and it's not being held together with just kind of, um, I don't know, like, you know, melding plat, it, it kind of acts like a zip tie. For me, it's about as strong as a zip tie. It has flexibility for different sizes. Uh, what I really love using this for is actually usually not tying up cables. I usually have dedicated Velcro for that kind of stuff, but I'll use this to actually tie things to other things. So sometimes it'll be uh, a power brick for an LED light being tied to a light stand uh, or other things like that where I I kind of, it's it's where I use it in place of gaffer state basically without leaving a mess and dealing with all that kind of stuff. So that's actually where I end up um using something like this, but there's, it's like, you know, six bucks for 10 of them. So I buy a couple of packs, I throw it in the bag and it becomes an easy way to kind of tie two things together uh, or tie cables along something else. I've used it to tie uh, an XLR cable to boom poles. Uh, so it works in lots of situations like that where it's wait, kind wait, of like an XLR Velcro. cable to a boom pole. So don't, don't you get any kind of rattle out of those like wooden pegs hanging off of that? Uh, no, because once you stretch it around and you loop it around the wood, the wood is being used to keep the rubber band taut. Okay. So the wood actually doesn't move at all. So that that little, I don't know, T-intersection, you could call it, that's what actually provides the friction to keep uh, the rubber band from coming undone. So it's actually super tight, doesn't make any noise, and that's one of the reasons why I love it. So attaching stuff to tripods, uh, sometimes attaching stuff to carry-ons or whatever, because like I said, most of the time for my cables... I have very big Velcros and I've got them permanently attached, whether it's built in that way or I just cut a hole in it, zip a zip tie and I go, okay, now this Velcro is going to stick to this cable. So I use that, but uh, I've got a couple of gear ties too and I'll use them for some of the smaller stuff. They do make longer gear ties too, DJ, you know, if you want to round up longer cables. Now you've seen these, Devin, and now that I've shown them to you, do you think you'll incorporate them into your kit? I mean, is this something that would be handy for you Is like a wraparound, easily removable, uh, more like a stationary, continuously used piece? Uh, for me, uh, because something like that, I treat that like uh, bungo ties or like Velcro. It's a non-permanent solution. If I need to permanently wrap something or long-term storage, I always use zip ties. They're the cheapest, they're some of the strongest, and they're easy to remove and easy to apply if you're willing to cut the old zip ties, So, and which I usually am. I got a pair of diagonal cutters on me, uh, usually in my bag at all times. So uh, in your case, those, I could see them really being used for smaller cables uh, as well as, um, I don't know, just general organization. I see it more as like kind of a keychain. That's hard to describe, but like, oh, I need to attach this uh, to my bag or something like that. I'll use something like that because you can kind of make it a custom length where my bungo ties, you kind of have to wrap them twice if you want to have them in a smaller package. And there's kind of a limitation on how far they'll stretch. So uh, so I, I could I could maybe see it, but it's, you know, it's not something I'm dying over. Now on zip ties, have you ever run across someone who always cuts off the tail of the zip tie, but leaves like that sharp edge and you stick your hand <laughs> into the back of their cable mess and you get yeah. cuts and scrapes across your hand? Uh, I cut the tails of zip ties all the time because uh, they're always in the way. Uh, usually, though, what I do is I make sure that I cut it right at the root. A lot of people just kind of cut the end off. I usually cut it right up until uh, the actual, I don't know what you'd call it, the nut of the zip tie. So I'll cut it there. And then usually I don't find that a problem with my gear. Uh, I'm, I'm not usually, I'm not getting scratched up on it. So maybe it's me using that technique uh, or maybe I'm just not that unlucky like you are. But for me, uh, I'm all about the zip ties. They actually, I haven't bought one yet, but they make zip tie guns. Yeah, apparently. that's what I actually use. I was leading into a zip tie gun. The, <laughs> the zip tie gun, uh, if you haven't seen one of these, it's very handy. 
uh, they're they're basically like a squeeze trigger that uh, that squeezes the end. And I'm bringing up a picture right now as we speak, so you can you guys can see this. The zip tie gun. If you're watching and, the video, and actually this is pretty uh, ghetto looking one. That is a ghetto one. Uh, no, that's not even that's not even a zip tie. That's an no, that's not. Gun. That's got twenty twos on right, it. That's not a zip tie. Gun. This is not a gun podcast. That <laughs> that's is a gun. A, that's not a zip tie. Maybe gun. I left out the tie. So it's yeah. You may have left out the tie. Bar. Oh, that's better. Okay, so here's okay. a zip tie gun. This is much more like it. Uh, basically, you place your zip tie in the end of this, and you squeeze the trigger, and it chops it off right at the edge. Uh, keeps the sharpness away and uh, gives you a really nice secure tightness to your clamp. It also yep. has an adjuster here, so you can adjust how tight it goes on your cable. And if you're doing a lot of these, you got to be really careful because your cables uh, are sensitive to being squished dramatically. So don't go crazy on zip ties if you're putting in uh, permanent insulation or a semi-permanent insulation but this, because you can damage cables. One of those guns is totally necessary if you are... Uh, building out something that's semi-permanent, say like a studio kind of shooting environment where you're running Absolutely. lots of cables. You, you've got cameras on tripods on wheels and they have to have umbilicals and stuff like that. You'll want to zip tie that like every foot and a half. And so something like that is an absolute godsend and they are usually less than 20 bucks, less than 30 bucks for one of those things. And so just getting one of those just to like do an install or you're doing a big rack and you're going to like sit here and permanently cable some of your SDI or power cables it absolutely makes a huge difference. It makes the job go so much easier. So I totally recommend it. I love those things. Uh, if if you're going to be doing it a lot, if you're just zip tying up your cables to put in a box, uh, no, you know, just watch Simpsons while you're doing it. So, <laughs> Yeah, big installs if you're doing a lot of cabling. Um, I actually bought mine. I was working at a radio station, uh, helping them with their studio transmit link setup and uh, installing a bunch of uh, connectors and mixers and so on. And, you know, having one of those, I probably used up 25 or 30 bags of zip ties. And it, it's a repetitive stress injury if you're cutting those on a regular basis. Yeah. And I sound like a, a weenie, but man, you don't imagine how much that starts to hurt your hand if you're just squeezing a pair of side cutters all day long mm -hmm. trying to cut zip ties. So be careful with that kind of stuff. Now, that's a less, we're not a medical podcast <laughs> here. So let's move on to some quick release plates uh i've complained about this before and i've seen it pop up again it looks like uh manfrotto is yet again bait and switch selling qr plates on amazon uh they're selling a quick release plate that has the spring uh tab in it to attach it to your camera but when you, you actually get it you get something that looks like this uh it's two uh plastic grommets where the spring oh. unit should be and then your set of screws now for Man shame manfrotto charges somewhere in the range of 25 bucks for these 501 pl plates also known as manfrotto prices yes they charge oh manfrotto prices <laughs> it's it's ridiculous and so for 25 dollars, you'd expect them to have the spring and all the other bits that are supposed to be on there. Now, the reason yeah. I bring that up is because uh, Chinese seller and uh, uh, Korean seller uh, King Joy, uh, I don't mm -hmm. know, that's just, there's like four brands of these or five brands of these right, floating around right. out there. But these guys are selling the entire mount plus the plate uh, for $25, so the same price. And theirs is fully functional. It already has the spring. It has the uh, screw-on bits and pieces. And it's got uh, an extra level on it. Well, the level's not that important, but do you think these are uh, infringements on the copyright of Manfrotto? Or do you think the 501PL's been around long enough? that it is out of patent protection. You, you know, that's, oh my gosh, we, 
I'm not I'm not going to go into a, a conversation about patent infringement, uh, but uh, generally speaking, my thoughts on it is, yeah, it's been around long enough and it's not it's not a special or ingenious design uh I, for probably like three years ago i got a bunch of uh gaiato i think is how it's pronounced a bunch of other uh plates and they're just slightly wider than the manfrotto they're using all the same techniques for it which from an engineering perspective it's not like the quick release plate is a very complicated mechanism that's very specific in how it operates it's just very general you just have friction points and you have tightening and you have a locking bolt so um for the most part yeah, it's I, I, I don't think that it's really patent infringement. I know it is because I know they can renew it and they can protect it and it's like copyright and it's, you know, my thoughts on that too is after like 200 years, copyright should kind of just not be a thing for that piece of art. Uh, but that's more of a moral argument than what we're talking about here. Um, while you looked at those and you saw that Gaiato's actually now making Manfrotto size plates so they're compatible which I avoided. I actually put the larger Gaiato on all my Manfrotto tripods just so I had one system that worked with everything. Um, so are you using the longer uh, 501 PLs, the the like extended, what, 700 series or five, what, I don't really uh, know. I am now. I, I recently got uh, one of those newer versions of the Manfrotto 502s okay. or 503, one of those two. So that comes with the long one, but it's still compatible with the short one, which I was surprised with too. So... They're really interchangeable, but yeah, I'm kind of switching over to the long ones. Uh, I posted in the show notes uh, what I recently bought. I haven't used them yet. They haven't arrived yet, but probably a week ago, I bought uh, two of these because I went, hey, they're only 20 bucks a piece, and they look to be compatible with Manfrotto. Uh, they've got that pop-up like you were talking about, you know, spring-loaded things. Wow, so 19 that's, bucks. Uh, that's uh, pretty affordable. Yeah, I mean, if you search around on other places, you'll maybe find it for a few bucks cheaper. Uh, some places, I think, even have it for 16 bucks. But uh, generally speaking, now, the reason why I like this more than what DJ posted, because if you go back to the Kingjoy, you'll notice a huge engineering problem with the Kingjoy. And it's not that huge. It's just me being me. But they put the friction uh, lock on the left side. And you don't see it in that picture, but it's really on the wrong side because of the way the plate slides in the quick release is on the same side as the friction where you're applying the lock on the sliding plate which means that when you loosen it there's potential for that lock lever to be in the way of the push button in order to properly release the plate as well as i'm very used to locking uh, my plates on the right side because all the tripods i use manfrotto benro doesn't matter when you lock a quick release plate it's on the right side and all the other systems I've used, they're on the right side when you go to lock the plate. So buying a quick release plate that has the lock on the left side, that would mess with my head. So <laughs> I guess I never really uh, put much consideration into which side the lock and which side the quick release were on. But you're right, they usually are opposing sides. And, and uh, it's just one of those things that, yeah, I wouldn't think about it either. And then once that gets in the way while you're in the field and you have two minutes to set up a shot and like you're running behind and like the stress is on you and the producer's breathing down your neck, those little things make you go, I'm done with this. I'm going to get something else that's proper to what I need it to be. So you're right. It totally depends on the shooting situation. But for me, little things like that, I go, you know what? I'll check elsewhere or I'll pay a few more bucks to get it done this way because it helps me in that situation. And that's part of a learning experience. Some people, it doesn't matter. Other people, it's a big deal. So, Well, I can tell me. you that the uh, Gaiatos, or the Gaiat, I think I'm saying that right, Gaiatos, Gaiatos. Uh, yeah, they're, sure. they're just as expensive 
as the Manfrotto units that I use. Uh, this is the one I have. I, I basically have narrowed my entire kit down to two. I have the Gallardo, mm-hmm. uh, and this is the MH652, and it's a it's a very narrow, very small uh, quick-release plate and adapter that fits into tiny locations. And the nice thing about this guy is if you have something like, a, I don't know, a GoPro cage or a GH4 that you need to put into a tiny rig, uh, the plates themselves are very just small, and it's still a positive lock, so as soon as you push it down, it clips in, and then you slide the lever over in order to tighten it down uh, to Ye- the plate. And you know what else those are really good for? Uh, anything with a, a steady cam. Or a Citicam-like environment, Absolutely, like a gimbal. They don't move. They don't go forward and backwards. So if you're using the same lens for the entire time that you're on steady, it makes it easy for, oh, let's go set up this tripod shot, or let's you know do handheld for this shot. You can pop it off, change lenses, do whatever. And then when you go back to your steady cam, you put back on the same lens, you put on that plate, or you keep that plate on, and then you put it back into the gimbal, and it's already balanced. So... Uh, I, when I was using Steadicams uh, before gimbals, that was a lifesaver, and I totally use that over a sliding plate. Sliding plates make a lot of sense on a tripod, where you're trying to you're constantly balancing depending on what gear you throw on, what lens you throw on. If you got a longer, heavier lens, you're going to want to you know set the camera back a bit. And that locking, that sliding locking system, helps you to balance your tripod so you can have smoother shots, and your tripod doesn't fall on its face every time you unlock it. Uh, Okay, come on. Have you really run into your camera, like causing your tripod to fall on the face based on where it's located on a 501 PL plate? uh, Not necessarily. It doesn't concern the plate. It concerns the tripod head. And yes, I have. Even though we talk a lot about DSLRs, uh, using some cheaper plates and a lot of heads don't allow for adjustable counterweight systems. I mean, if you spend 600 bucks on a head, you can get one with a counterweight system. What that means is there's usually a level from zero to four, and there's a spring in there that kind of tries to keep the head upright. And the idea is it is a, it's a counterweight. I'm air quoting here, a virtual counterweight. So if the camera's really heavy and you lean it forward, uh, it's going to naturally want to dip more because now its center of mass is ahead of the tripod head. And so... That counterweight system is supposed to counteract that by trying to pull it back up to middle. And so it's supposed to be a counterweight system. So if you use a tripod head that doesn't have any counterweight, which the larger Manfrotto heads like 502s, 503s, and some of your Benros and other big heads, they have one counterweight setting built in. Um, no, because they'll fight the DSLR and you'll have trouble like angling okay, it so down. You're, that far. you're talking about it more affecting the fluid head motion and the spring yeah. tension that's on the head itself. Okay, I yeah. would agree with that statement then. You got so me. So it's 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 one of those where and, and like I said, it depends on your shooting environment and what tripods you're using. Uh, at one of the studios I use, they have gigantic Panasonic P2 cameras that are shoulder mounted news ENG cameras. Okay. And they have them on these large, uh, kind of nice Miller tripod heads. Now if I set the counterweight to zero And I start to lean down because whoever I'm filming is kneeling down or something like that. I don't want the camera to start to fall forward on me. Now, I'm still holding it. It's not like it's going to fall, fall, but it's going to start to fight me because I'm just trying to lean down and it's trying to fall down. Where when I turn the counterweight up to counterweight all of that weight, I can lean down and let go. And it sits perfectly angled down and I can angle up and let go and it'll sit and look up. That's something that a lot of people don't spend money on tripods that like do nice things like that. But in a studio environment, that's the kind of smoothness you want so that you're not fighting the tripod. You're working with the tripod. So, uh, and that's, that's a give and take. Cause with the Manfrotto head, like you're talking about like a 502, it has a built-in counterweight. And with something really light, like a mirrorless DSLR, when you angle down and let go, it's going to snap up oh, yeah. because there's so much Definitely. counterweight on it. 
Uh, those those tripod heads are kind of made for something with a bit more weight. Uh, you probably want, usually like, want something in the ten pound range. Yeah, the about the ten pound because, range. Uh, I believe the five hundred three is rated for like eighteen pounds. So if you're sort yeah. of in the middle, the spring works pretty well. And then if you move down to the five hundred one heads or the five hundred two heads, I, I believe the rating on those is like twelve or thirteen pounds. So right. a five ish pound weight mm-hmm. will give you about the optimal for uh panning and, and when you're running a gh4 with like a panasonic plastic lens you're barely pushing a pound so that those tripods will actually fight you to stay upright because they're expecting more weight on them and that's something to consider i don't think a lot of people consider when they buy tripods but that's something to consider is that a lot of the cheaper ones come with built-in counterweights that you can't adjust and there's no reason to buy a tripod head that has an adjustable counterweight unless you actually expect to put big cameras on and put little cameras on in the studio environment you have both first off they're really big cameras and then secondly you have some cameras that you're going to put teleprompters on which add a ton of weight even when you balance it you're adding five or six pounds of weight to it so having something that's adjustable allows it to be more flexible in an environment where you're going to throw that much weight on it otherwise get the right tripod head for your camera and honestly the best way to do that is go into your local photography store bring your camera plop it on and see how it works yeah, and uh, the other thing, too, to think about, since we're divulging into tripods here, is actually <laughs> fluid heads themselves. Uh, a lot of the lower price fluid heads, uh, I, I mention all the time that I use a, f- a 502, 503 um, uh, head, Manfrotto heads, and they're fluid, but they're not nearly as good as some of the stuff that you can rent or uh, mm-hmm. if you're going higher up. Uh, they're, they're like low, mid-range for... Uh, you know, news shooting and stuff like that. When, and I was telling Devin this off the air a couple episodes ago, I just gotten back from a shoot where I was using a gear head, a uh, tripod <laughs> mount head. And it, it's gorgeous. Like you crank both handles, you get beautiful uh, turns, you get beautiful pans and tilts, and it's so smooth and gorgeous. And then you go back to using like a mediocre uh, 503 HDV head. <laughs> and it's just like, oh, this is the worst. You know, my pans, they're just mediocre at best. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, there are tricks uh, if you've never done it, if you grab a rubber band, for example, and you put that on the end of your uh, your knob and use that to pull the handle with the rubber band, that will ease in and give you a little bit smoother movements back and forth. And I, I've seen people where they kind of lean their entire body and, and pull their arm with their chest in order to get good pans out of those. But they're not perfect for that sort of thing. Uh, once you start, if you ever get a chance to use a higher-end Miller tripod, for example, or, you know... Uh, trying to think of what's the h the brand that starts with an h uh i don't know drawing a blank okay uh <laughs> anyway uh, if you use some of the higher end uh, models uh, they're like two yeah. or three thousand dollars for these heads and tripod you know the legs that they're sitting on and th- to be honest they're designed for cameras that are in like the 20 to 30 pound range but yeah they are gorgeous and they have all kinds <laughs> of settings uh the friction is great on them the fluid is actually realistic fluid head motion it's not like the cheap fluid head motion you get out of these and if you go on uh, eBay. Sometimes you can find some of these rather high-end tripods for like five or six hundred bucks when uh, you know a rental studio is cleaning out their old inventory and stuff. And you will be getting something from like the '80s and '90s, but uh, they're still pretty awesome. They're very solid. Uh, the only issue is, is they're extremely heavy. Uh, mm-hmm. You're talking probably a twenty pound or maybe even thirty pounds, depending on which model you settle on. And the the gearheads are no exception. You get a big 
awesome oh, gearhead, yeah. and <laughs> that thing by itself could be a 20 pound box if it's uh, all metal gears and all metal linkage and counterweights and so on it's it's just crazy so you know it's not for the faint of heart and it's not something that you want to run and gun with but uh when you get to use them especially in a studio setting uh they are oh, yeah. pretty awesome and a tripod is a, a good investment spend spend a little bit of money on your sticks because you're gonna have those for quite some time absolutely all right, moving on down the line here, let's talk about this new lens from a company that has not delivered any lenses in the past. I'm going to say this, and I'm going to incorrectly pronounce it. I'm going to go with Irix. Does that sound... I like it. Irix. Yeah. I-R-I-X. Uh, this is a 50mm uh, f2.4 lens uh, for full-frame bodies. It is manual focus with electronic aperture control, and it is rectilinear, which means, you know, no fisheye effect in your image. And in general, it looks pretty sexy. Uh, no word yet on pricing. Uh, no word yet on when it's actually going to hit the market. We just have sometime in 2016. Uh, what do you think? Uh, is this bringing innovation to the lens market, Devin? Uh, you know, it, it, well, it's or really is this hard just to bring... another like weird, <laughs> like kind of, uh, out of the nowhere company, you know, producing some would, wacky looking well, lens. You would think, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's the next big thing in lenses with their website having like, you know, large vistas behind their lens. Uh, but, <laughs> uh, no, I think, I think it, it will probably be like most stuff we see. It'll be a solid performer, uh, and it'll look great. And work great. Uh, hitting 2.4 at 15 millimeters isn't anything we haven't necessarily seen before. I guess in full frame, uh, it, it is kind of you know uh, pushing performance, but it's not the fastest lens ever at that focal length. So it's not revolutionary. Uh, I think just as long as the price is competitive, that would be the part that makes it compelling. Because uh, I could foresee from what I you know we aren't seeing sample shots or anything like that, but from what I see here, how they're talking about it. I imagine it's going to be a really good performer. It looks like it's going to be a really well, really solid built lens. And I'm like, yeah, this looks like a lens I'd buy in a Nikon F mount and then, you know, put on everything I own because uh, that's how I buy my lenses. But, uh, you know, it depends on pricing because that compared to, you know, a Canon Prime or something like that, I'm like, well, it really depends on pricing for this to be compelling for me. There are two features that I actually thought were were kind of nice when I started looking this over before we started talking about it. it. One of them is actually the size of the front uh, flange. So around the lens itself, and I'll see if I can find a picture so you guys can see this, uh, they've made it so large that you can actually uh, get a filter on this properly. Uh, mm -hmm. So it extends past the bulbous element, and it's out wide enough that there is actually room around that with filter threads that can be accessed so you can put a freaking filter on it which uh you know a lot of wide angle lenses don't take that into account uh, um panasonic um <laughs> olympus uh you know you have so much of a bulbous element at the end and they don't flange out away from it far enough to give you the option to put filters on it so that is nice and the other thing i was happy to see is the fact that it does have a rear filter slot. Now, this isn't a no. new feature. You do see those in a lot of lenses, and it's pretty common for wide-angle lenses to have the filter in the back. And they're selling this in two different flavors. Uh, they've got one that I believe is called the Firefly, and that is a skinnier, uh, lighter weight, more plasticky version of this lens. And then they've got another one, and the name escapes me for whatever reason, uh, but that one is the higher... Uh, higher end water sealed all magnesium. metal bits magnesium body and so on so 
It is interesting, and I am glad anytime new lenses come to market because uh, you know that gives you way more options to choose from than just the standard, uh, you know, four or five companies that normally release stuff. Uh, on the other hand, am I excited about this? Am I going to run out and buy it? P- probably not. I'm going to lean towards definitely not. But uh, uh, what about you, Devin? Is there any use cases where 15 millimeter on a uh, full frame body would really just uh, make your mouth water? Uh, no, because I'm still not in the business of full frame yet. Um, I mean, that may change if I switch over to something a little larger, like uh, an FS5 or something like that. But for right now, no. Uh, there's nothing compelling. And for me, things like that rear filter uh, doesn't compel me. I, I know a lot of people like the idea and comes with that. But for me, that is just terribly inconvenient for the way I shoot. Everyone else is different. Uh, but for me, going through the hassle because I do consider it a hassle. The hassle of having a map box is way more useful to me than dealing with filters that I'm sliding into an individual lens that then doesn't apply to my other lenses. And it's kind of like an extra piece of kit I need to carry around just for utilizing this one lens. It doesn't work for me. So that's where I'd much rather go with just a map box where I go, yeah, it works with whatever I've got. And it always works and I take it with me. Um, So to each their own. But for me personally, that doesn't fit the way that I shoot. The front filters, that can help to keep me small and keep me mobile and put a variable ND on there, and I can make use of that, uh, which is nice to see. But that's not groundbreaking for me. I am, uh, as you guys have probably heard many times, a lazy shooter. And as a lazy lazy shooter, shooter. I carry a couple of these ND, uh, variable ND filters with me at, uh, I believe this is like a 72 and I've got some 80 and some change sizes, and then I just adapt them down. I Matte boxes are... I know there's the client argument, and I won't disagree with anybody. People the client still to argument. this day will say, you know, the clients want me to wear, you know, have a matte box on because it makes me look more professional. But I think anymore, as you go out on more and more shoots, you see so many people shooting DSLR cameras. Uh, the, the matte box, if you have a practical use for it, I don't want to poo-poo them. They're, they're good. They have their, there are definitely things that you can use a matte box for that are really handy. Uh, but in general, there are a lot of things that when I see a matte box out there and then I look inside and realize that they just have a matte box on and no filters. Uh, I mean, really, buddy, did, did, did you need a sun hood that bad yeah. to uh, bring out an entire rig just to mount your matte box to get it out? Uh, your your nice little French flag there, great. Yeah, no, you're you're totally right. There's not much of a use for a map box if you're not using filters, and that's the only time I really brought out my map box is to use filters because uh, I don't know. I just don't have that many flaring issues. Maybe it's because I'm not full frame. Maybe it's because I'm not. You know, I don't have lenses. That I say really embrace give me a lot of the uh, lens flare. You know, uh, embrace the lens bring flare. Bring on no. the lens flare. It's, bring on the lens flare. I, I want to JMJ uh, Abrams everything. You know, I just want anytime the camera pans, I want a light in the corner and I want a lens flare mm-hmm. across the entire shot. It, that's how life should be. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but um, so I mean, it's rare for me to consider the sunlight a problem on wider lenses though that's the only reason why i bring the matte box out because for one wider lenses give me more flare problems so it's where i would need something like a sun hood or at least a french flag to kind of keep uh flares out uh because usually at that point the flares are bad enough that you're losing a lot of contrast it's not like a pretty streak like in jj abrams with their anamorphic filters it's usually like everything turns to gray because of the way the light casts across that front element but 
And then also it's a situation where I usually can't manually mount filters on the front of my wide angle lenses. So really the only time I'm using a map box is when I'm super, super wide, which only happens when I'm renting a lens or doing some kind of special shoot. So I'm with DJ on that. Most of the time I'm not dragging anything out because most of my lenses don't have a problem. And that little plastic sun hood takes care of me 99% of the time. So uh, now I did want to talk about... Uh, one other lens while we're kind of on the lens subject here. And this is for those of you that are shooting on a Sony uh, A7S body. Uh, this guy right here is actually a fairly affordable option, and that is the wrong camera I'm switching to. Uh, let's <laughs> go over here and take a look at this. If you're not familiar with it, uh, the LA-0E4 adapter for the Sony A7S line of cameras uh, basically allows for any motor or uh, Minolta-based lens to be adapted to a Sony camera because the mount was originally developed and bought from Minolta to move to the Sony A line of cameras. So if you have that adapter, you can buy these Minolta A-mount lenses for fairly cheap and still achieve autofocus as long as you have that uh, $250 to $300 uh, LA-OE4 uh a mount to E mount adapter. Now, uh, this lens in particular is an 85 millimeter f1.4 uh, that I I'm looking on eBay right now. I just bought this because I was like, oh man, this is a great price. And I'm not going to scroll through too much of my stuff here. You guys are seeing everything I'm watching. Uh, there's a lot of junk in there. Uh, right here, 375. So 375. That's a pretty darn good price for a 85 millimeter f1.4 and if you think about it and you start looking for other minolta glass uh, you can find a 50 millimeter f1.4 that'll set you back around 150 bucks you can find a 35 millimeter f2 that'll run around 350 or an, a 30 or 28 millimeter f1.4 that will set you back about 560 uh, those are all pretty decent prices for some older glass, but still works with AF on your Sony bodies as long as you have the adapter. What do you think, Devin? Uh, is that a decent price for that range of prime lenses? Oh, I'd say absolutely. I mean, anytime you look at old lenses, you're going to be getting usually a, a killer deal, all things considered, because at the performance you're talking about, what comes to mind is like the Rokinon 85, yeah, uh, which is a T1.5, what is it, F1.4 yeah, F1 or something 4. like that? Uh, and I think that guy goes for like 280 or 300. So you getting it, um, I really like the Minolta stuff. I think that in general, it attaches to everything. Uh, when, when you're on mirrorless, it's one of those options. Most people don't consider just like the Canon, uh, FD glass. Most people don't consider that cause that's not convertible for most DSLRs, but mirrorless, you know, the world's your oyster. So uh, Minolta is one of those that I've had a look at. I've never bought a Minolta, but I've always kept an eye on them and their prices because I've always seen images from Minolta glass and it's always looked good and the performance has always been there. And I've never heard any complaints about the build quality. So there is one know, caveat though. Check this out. So see this tiny little thing right here? Yeah. That is your focus ring. And it's pressed right up against uh, your your lens hood. So it's maybe like a eight, uh, maybe eighth, uh, half inch at the most, maybe a, a quarter inch long or wide. So not much in the range of a focus nah, ring. Uh, that doesn't bother me. A little shifty there. Uh, the other thing to note is that um, on the back of these lenses, they have a little adapter. And that's because the adapter is is hooked into a motor unit that's in that L.A., 
uh, OE4 mm-hmm. adapter mount. So the motor drive is actually camera body based as opposed to lens based. So these lenses are smaller uh, and a, a lot more affordable, but they do not have their own internal motor. They have to be driven by this extra adapter piece. So that combination, you know, it's not perfect. Uh, it, they are a little loud if you're trying not to, you know, scare off wildlife or something like that. It kind of whines and clicks and whirs when it's operating. Uh, but so far, it's done a pretty good job. I've This is my third Minolta lens for my A7S body. Uh, I only have two native Sony lenses. And I could say, honestly, that the AF between the Minolta with the adapter and the AF uh, for the Sony native lenses, the E-mounts, it's pretty much identical. They're both uh, not that amazing. Do okay. Uh, you know, I wouldn't take these out on a photography shoot. But uh, <laughs> that's pretty much it for my Sony investments. Now, what else do we got in the news here, Devin? Looks like there might be a firmware update for the GH4. Just, just a firmware update? Don't you remember Panasonic said this was a groundbreaking firmware update? I mean, is it? do you think this is just them uh, trying to push more firmware out so that uh, they can erase all those guys that managed to get uh, their log mode installed on their camera? Uh, yeah, possibly. I mean, I had an uh, interesting conversation with somebody about the V-Log, uh, I don't know, scandal, whatever you want to call it, <laughs> with the Panasonic GH4s. And a lot of people making moral arguments being like, well, if they screwed up, then we should be able to have it just because they screwed up. I I think in general, the reason why it wasn't included for free and Panasonic is not interested in giving it out for free is because most people don't need it. Like V-Log is really only incredibly useful if you're going to pair it with other V-Log systems. If you're running a bunch of Panasonic P2 cameras, you're in a studio environment, or you have a professional colorist who's going to do stuff based off of that V-Log table. And most people who are talking about this, complaining about this, whatever, they don't. Like, they're usually single shooters who just want, you know, some flatness and some ability to color grade. And V-Log, I don't think, is necessary for doing that kind of stuff. It's a pain in the uh, ass. Yeah, it's pain well. In the butt. The, Excuse me. Besides, besides, uh, color correct. Besides, lookup tables being kind of a pain in the butt if you're a solo shooter. Uh, I just don't think that that vlog part, that uh, getting the flatness that is vlog, is necessary because you're not in a system of vlog. Uh, like I said, so it's completely different if you have if you're in the Panasonic camp and you've got a bunch of P2s and you got some ENGs you're trying to color match with and your GH4 is your, you know, B camera or something like that, then V-Log makes sense. And then for you, you're in a professional environment. You spend a lot of money in your gear. A hundred bucks is nothing uh, for you to get this to more easily color match. I you know, that's saving bought, time. I mean, I, I didn't cheat. I didn't buy. I just installed it and tested it out. And then I was like, wait a minute, uh, this is a waste of my time. I'm not going to use V-Log <laughs> that much. But I was actually, I was talking to a guy last week and, uh, he he paid for the $99, got it. And he's mm-hmm. like, man, he's like, my footage just isn't looking as good when I'm shooting vlog and, and grading. Sure. And I'm like, well, that's because you really have to uh, bring in some contrast and do all these other things. I'm like, do this for me. Uh, go set your camera real quick to uh, vivid mode and, and mm-hmm. shoot. And so he shot it and he's like, oh, this looks great. I'm like, okay, yeah. you probably never want to use uh, a vlog for anything again because yeah. if you're happy with an internal preset like vivid on your f- video footage, then you're in a good good spot. And, I mean, and let's let's face it, most GH4 guys are solo shooters, um, or 
they're at least solo cameramen. You, you, you aren't backed by a colorist or anything like that. You may have a sound guy. You may not be solo solo, but you don't have a colorist. You don't have an editor. You don't have all these other people you're throwing your footage off to. Absolutely. You're going to be the one dealing and working with your footage if you're a GH4 shooter most of the time. And I'm sure that Panasonic spent a lot of money getting the color table right to get this new sensor to match their old vlog format and everything else. And so they're trying to get money for that because they know that that's not something everyone's going to demand or want. People just demanded and wanted it because nerds on forums are like, oh, flatness, maximum color, you know, dynamic range, all this kind of stuff. And it's like, (laughs) that's so different when you're out there shooting every day. It's not necessary. Like all the news broadcasts you see, a lot of the television you love is not shot at log with some crazy colorist and everything else. Yeah, there's some indie films that are done that way. And sure, every film that's shot on a red is usually shot with log. And they also spend, you know, over, you know, $20,000 on a colorist to sit there and make it look perfect. So, uh, you know, it just doesn't match the people who are usually handling this camera. And Panasonic, I think, only threw it out there being like, if this is your B cam or if this is your C cam, this is your crash cam that is in an environment, you're shooting a movie and this is your crash cam and you want it to match your other Panasonic cameras, uh, then yeah, you can buy this plugin and it'll match. So anyways, on to the actual firmware update, uh, which I agree, yes, they're probably trying to uh, do some of that kind of stuff with uh, getting people to forget about the whole hack. Um, they There's post-focus which is interesting. It sounds super useful for macro users. I haven't had my hands on it. I haven't tried it out, but it does sound very useful for macro photography and potentially normal photography too. I'm guessing it's taking pictures at multiple focus lengths, so you probably need an autofocus lens to do that. It also has 4K burst mode, so it'll do 30 FPS taking 4K pictures with both burst mode, start and stop burst mode, uh, as well as pre-burst mode. So there's a few interesting modes if you want to capture that moment uh, that kind of makes me think of it like a high-speed camera. Like, it's not really high-speed, but the pre-burst mode makes me think of that mode that you trigger on a high-speed camera where you hit it after the event happens, and then it writes the buffer to memory. Um, so there's there's some interesting stuff you can get. You know, doing 30 pictures a second is a pretty aggressive FPS, all things considered. Well, and there's an actually flat- one of the things that uh, the 1DC and 1DX were sort of touting is that uh, by shooting, uh, no, it's 1DC, excuse me, was shooting yeah, 4K, the 1DC. Uh, you could pull individual stills out of the motion JPEG stream and then get uh, good images. How do you think at 30 frames per second that would affect uh, motion blur, though? Uh, I imagine, yeah, you're probably going to get more rolling shutter and other things because you don't have the physical shutter in play when you're talking about 30 FPS because I don't think the physical shutter is capable of 30 FPS. Otherwise, they would have already sold it that way. But... I was a little skeptical of that as a, as a photography tool because, you know, mm-hmm. if you tell someone, hey, spin around up here and I'm just going to put it in 4K video mode and then pull some stills out of there, you, you might get some winners. But uh, anytime you introduce motion, uh, you're going to have a little bit of at least yeah, weird blur but... and other problems. But you can, remember, you don't have to do like a 180 degree shutter rule when you're talking about these 4K burst modes. That's true. Uh, and, and so while it may not look as clean as using a physical shutter, like keep in mind there's a reason why mirrorless cameras still have a physical shutter. Originally you had a physical shutter because of DSLRs. You've got a prism and two things you're trying to, uh, you know, trying to look at the light. Uh, but in this case, they have a physical shutter because it makes that CMOS sensor work better. Um, and you'll get less, uh, you know, rolling shutter effects and, you know, you'll get the uh, proper amount of motion blur, uh, whatever you're designing to get a motion blur out of. So with that 4k mode, you can adjust the shutter speed however you want. Um, 
And I, I think, yeah, it, it could be interesting for certain action applications, but you're going to get whatever the negative effects are when you shoot without a shutter, which generally speaking, yeah, if you're trying to get a shutter speed, I would say, I didn't scientifically test this, but in my own personal experience, if you're trying to get a shutter speed faster than 200th of a second, uh, then you kind of need the physical shutter to be in there. I feel like using the electronic shutter, as they call it, uh, you're not going to get anything great. And 4K burst mode kind of sounds like it lends itself to these super high-speed events, uh, but I feel like it's not going to be fantastic at those high-speed events because it doesn't actually have the shutter working for it, where something like a, a 1DC or you know you these big DSLRs that have amazing FPS counts with their physical shutter, you're probably going to get a cleaner image from them. So give or take, it's really cool to have. I don't consider this groundbreaking firmware. Uh, at the end of the day, like Panasonic was touting was like really going to impress people. Um, but it's nice to see them still developing. It's nice to see them support it. I don't think this is directly because of, you know, they're trying to cover up the vlog hack. I think this is also part of, Hey, uh, you know, our other cameras were developing there because they're kind of all on the same platform. The GX eight, all that kind of yeah. stuff is on the same platform. They're like, Hey, we developed these features for this. It doesn't cost us that much engineering time to throw this down on our older cameras, and it's going to make our customers more happy about owning a Panasonic product. Well, and, and it could what... be uh, keeping the plate warm because they don't have anything really new to bring out at NAB this year. You know, if yeah. we're not if they're not planning on releasing a GH5, uh, anything that they can do to kind of uh, kowtow to the GH4 owners and keep it somewhat mm-hmm. relevant in the new camera market that will be hitting everybody in the face in the next couple of months. Uh, the the better off they are in, in the terms of you know happy customers and happy people using the cameras. So and and that's what I was kind of thinking too. Seeing this kind of a firmware update makes me go, ah, eh, maybe this no looks GH5. Like, this looks like something that they would have put in the GH5, and the fact that it's here now makes me think they aren't putting it in the GH5, aka they aren't coming out with a GH5 right now. So. Uh, you know, it's all still rumors, but for me personally, I'm like, ah, this kind of tells me the GH5 ain't coming to NAB, so everyone's going to have to wait another year or so, or maybe they're going to look for a winter release on that something like that. Maybe it's not ready. Who knows? But. I am excited, and I do hope this happens, actually, is the uh, the possibility of a 5D Mark IV. I would love to be surprised <laughs> by a 5D Mark IV with 4K shooting capabilities at NAB, and I would buy that, uh, you know, unless it's like five grand. If it's in the three grand range, totally sold. I will jump back in my cannon boat and sail onward and forward. But uh, I, I, I'm afraid that may be wishful thinking in my A7S Mark II may be my continued shooter for quite some time to come. No, they'll, they'll be a G, they'll be a, a Mark IV. It just will still shoot 1080p. That's <laughs> <laughs> they'll add two headphone jacks instead of just one. And now oh, there you go. With two listeners of audio. No, See, is, guys, we were listening. Yeah. <laughs> you wanted headphone jacks. We gave that to you. All the headphone <laughs> jacks. All right, speaking of headphone jacks, let's move on to this uh, really simple uh, audio adapter for your cameras. Uh, a lot of times I spend hours talking about uh, different types of audio adapters, XLR inputs, and so on. But sometimes you can just do this on the cheap. And if you look right here, uh, this little adapter right here basically gives you a, a breakout for your left and right channels going into your camera. Now, with the GH4, you have pretty decent uh, audio preamps. And really, if you just need to bring in two lav mics into your camera, uh, something like this cable will do the trick. Now, that cable will set you back about $4.25, so it's fairly affordable. Uh, add to that this little uh, right angle 3.5 millimeter adapter 
and bam, now you have a method for clamping down on your audio jack so you don't damage the audio jack or yank your cables out. And you have the ability to plug in two different lav kits into your camera without any sort of adapter. Now, the reason I bring this up is because your camera has somewhat decent gain control. These lav kits have decent output gain control. So really, uh, doing this allows you to run one lav mic into the left channel and the other lav mic into the right channel, and you have your separation in your mix for later post-production. Uh, this is a total of less than $10 worth of kit to accomplish this, uh, minus, of course, the lav kits. You probably already need to own those. Mm -hmm. But, uh, Devin, what do you think about this? Is a, a cheap alternative and a light alternative to... Uh, something like a Juice Link or a Beach Tech audio adapter. Does this work okay? To be honest, I I feel like you're late to the game. Uh, I, I I'm kind of surprised. I I always I, have used an adapter, and then I saw this cable. I'm like, I wonder if you could do it the easy way. Uh, yeah. Well, I always I always knew that it was a stereo jack, so it's just a matter of splitting it. And uh, probably back when I did DJ's iRig hack, I bought two iRigs plug them into this cable and I've been running two XLRs with individual gain control and phantom power in each one for the better part of like two years now. So you have uh, an iRig pre off of each one of these inputs and then, yep. Wow. So I've done that, uh, in order to get, um, well, and things like uh, a lav receiver, it comes out to 3.5. So I'll dump it to 3.5 cause it's doing a, a line output anyways. It's not like it's doing a, a balance connection or anything like that, depending on your lav kit. So, mm -hmm. It's usually fine to just pump in there because it's running mono anyways, even though it looks like a stereo jack. And uh, for other situations where I'm using a shotgun mic, I need some phantom power or something like that, I use your little iRig uh, hack, and that's how I run that. And so in some situations where I'm not using wireless, then yeah, uh, I'm actually running both simultaneously at the same time. I'm using a bit of Velcro and crap to kind of string it all together and make it stick so it's not like a bunch of cables and boxes flying all over the place as I'm running around. But... Uh, yeah, I've used this for a long time. It works great. I've always been impressed with the way the GH3 sounds on its preamps. I think that it's w a step well above uh, something like a 5D. I, while, while, you know, really nice preamps, like the digital juice and everything else, they sound fantastic, or you do like a, a sound devices or something like that. They sound fantastic. I don't argue with that. But for the majority of my shooting, uh, the Panasonic has good enough. Uh, if you get loud mics and you get hot signals, the Panasonic sounds just fine. And I kind of appreciate, I know it's hard for a lot of people to set levels, but I kind of appreciate the fact that the GH3 came with a built-in limiter because I'm the kind of guy who in a live production environment where you don't have a second take, limiters are what saves me as opposed to running dual files, going into post and fixing it with a dual file. And me and DJ have had this argument before, but... For a lot of live stuff, too, if it's live to broadcast and it's going on air, there's no opportunity to use a second file. So in those situations, the limiter is totally necessary. And so the GH3 having a built-in limiter that you can't turn off is a little annoying, but also I don't mind it because that fits the kind of style that I shoot. So in any case, yeah, I've been using the splitter since I got my GH3. And yeah, I've been using it with dual lav packs. I've used it with dual preamps. Uh, I've used it with everything in order to split that stereo out. Because to me, that just made sense from day one is I'm like, it's a stereo input. I just need to split it. I'm one of those people so. that overly thinks through all the, the options and uh, misses something <laughs> really simple and easy like this one little cable. When I saw this, I was like, oh man, this would have been perfect for a long time. And the reason I ended up picking it up was actually, I was trying to scale this down a little bit because... Uh, right now with the GH4, uh, as soon as you add an extra 
uh, you know, a XLR input adapter at the bottom. This starts to get a bit unruly. Uh, but with mm-hmm. this sort of setup right here, uh, it's basically just my Sennheiser uh, G3s on either side. And then that can go right into the camera with just this easy-to-use cable. And that saves a lot of weight, a lot of extra wiring, and a little bit of extra cabling. And that's actually what ended up uh, driving me over to these little uh, ties, too. I was looking for some way to tie these down. And I've used those banjo. I always thought they were called banjo connectors, but I could be uh, wrong on that. Bongo connectors. Um, Bongo, sure. Yeah, and I've probably been saying that incorrectly for years. Uh, But the the thing is, is those are a little bit bulky for that kind of cable tie on your Mm -hmm. kit. And these guys are really nice for just, you know, wrapping up like three or four cables and keeping them sort of tied to the lip of a, of a quarter 20 hole or something like that. So, well, and with the last thing about this splitter is that it depends on the shooting style. But for me personally, I always run two tracks as like two tracks. So even if I'm recording somebody standing in front of the camera, it's one person facing the camera, talking straight into it. And I've got them mic'd with a lav. I like to run a second channel on a shotgun mic or something else like that, some kind of a backup system. Uh, I'm always shooting like that. I'm always thinking like that. So for me, from day one, I was always about making it two tracks. And um, But in a lot of situations, this is super useful. Uh, like you're saying, with two wireless packs, I used this uh, at a Ted Cruz event where I had the reporter loved up. And then I used the Sennheiser XLR uh, wireless lav kit with a, you know, SM58, whatever, yep. as a handheld mic. So I was able to get both a separate audio track so that the editor could sit there and mangle the audio and make it l- sound really nice because I have two individual tracks as opposed to just giving the re- reporter one mic and being like, okay, well, you have to make sure you talk into this. Otherwise, we won't be able to hear you. So uh, that definitely makes things sound better and work a lot easier in a live environments where you don't get a second take. Yeah. And that's actually a a good pro tip guys. If you're ever doing anything that involves interviews, uh, I always like to mic the talent with a lav mic and then hand them the microphone itself. Because a lot of time in these back and forth interviews, the person will forget to get the mic back to talk into it and ask the next next question. So then you don't yeah. end up capturing the reporter's audio and the guy that they're being that's being interviewed or the person that's being interviewed will have the mic the whole time and all you'll get is their mm-hmm. responses and you kind of want that back and forth. So for me, it's always been the safest bet to hand them a lob that stays on the the reporter and hand the mic off uh, to the other person, and that way it's never forgotten that the recorder or you know the reporter needs to be on a track that you can actually hear. And, and a, another quick tip with that, because that just made me think of uh, when I'm we're doing an interview that doesn't require the reporter's voice for whatever reason, because it's going to be cut up, mixed up, whatever. You got a half an hour interview that's going to turn into a soundbite. You don't need the reporter's responses in there or questions in there. Uh, I'll actually mic both a lav and I will set up either a C-stand or something like that to shoot a shotgun uh, on the person as well because they're two different sounds. A shotgun can give a lot of bass to it, but it might have a little bit more ambiance, you know, room echo and things like that. Uh, The lav mic may be like really bright, really hot and really clean, uh, but it maybe just doesn't pick up like the resonance of their voice or voice maybe doesn't sound fantastic. And uh, if you want to be a professional shooter, sometimes the editor is going to kind of really appreciate if you give them options like that, because who's ever doing the sound mixing can go, oh, you know what? We can bring in a little bit of the bass from the shotgun mic and kind of, you know, tail off the mids and the highs. So we get a bit more power out of his voice and then use, you know, the lav mic for like the rest of his voice and the actual, uh, you know, the higher the timber and stuff like that. So 
providing options like that for your editor, if you're especially if it's not yourself, and you're going to hand it off to somebody else. I, it's a little bit of extra work, uh, but sometimes that kind of divides you between like the professional and the amateurs. If you give people these options and you like, you know, just you make their jobs easier, they're going to enjoy working with you. So that's always a good tip. Have you ever run into that talent that gets mad when you try to put a lav mic on them and it's like, I don't do lav mics. I only do boom mics. You know, you bring a boom mic over here. Uh, no, I haven't. I mean, it, it depends on the, wow. No, I, I really haven't. If I'm doing a really nice, pretty sit down interview, then I'll usually hide the lav, whether that's taped under the shirt or it's just worn a little bit lower on the shirt so that they don't see it. Um, but no, I haven't had somebody who is against being loved. Um, I had a shoot of motivational I, speaker one time and he threw a fit when I tried to mic him. He's like, you can't really? mic me like this. I'm a mover. I move. I got to move. I can't be tied down to any kind of microphone. I'm like, well, you're wireless, so you're not really yeah, tied down. Right. He's like, yeah, but I, I want to be able to move my hands and be free of any clutter. And I, so wow. I was like, all right. So I brought a boom mic out and set another pole that, and like put it, it a so- few feet away from him. But like, it sounds like a bit of a diva if you ask me. That's happened um, three or four times in my career. And every, like I ask around about it when I remember to, and people are like, oh and yeah, other, there's always that one guy, yeah. that one weird guy that just hates having a lava mic put on him. So. Uh, no, I haven't had that. Um, I, I guess I could see that kind of being a thing. Um, I, I don't know. I, with, if I was in that situation, I would uh, say that they don't have an option. And uh, this is just the best way to get the audio and they'll have to deal with it. And sometimes that doesn't make friends, but usually the person who's hiring me or the producer, it's more important to impress them with good audio than for the talent to be happy with me as an audio guy. So it it depends, you know, you choose your battles, uh, but that's, that's funny. No, I haven't run across that myself. The other one is the old uh, bathroom mistake where someone forgets to put mute on or uh, forgets to like turn it off and they're being fed to a PA. So they wander mm-hmm. in, go to the bathroom for a while, and you can hear them like, oh, oh yeah. Oh. And then they like come back out again, and everybody's like looking at him kind of weird. And it's like, oh, wait a minute. That guy was just going um, to the bathroom. As, as an audio guy, I can't say I've ever come across that because actually I always pod uh, their levels down anytime that they walk off camera. Uh, just because, one, whether I know it or not, it could be live fed to a station. There could be stuff that's said that they didn't expect to say, you know, people can get in trouble. (laughs) There's always drama. There's always, you know, uh, gossip and crap like that. So usually once they're off camera, uh, if I'm a dedicated audio guy, I'll pot it down. Uh, if I'm a solo shooter, I'm usually not recording and I'm usually not listening. I'm usually like fixing something else up or something else like that, but I'm sure that there's probably things like that have happened while I've been on, uh, on set, but, I've I'm I remove myself from it. I pot it down. I don't need to listen to it. I focus on my job or whatever else I need to do. And I was not the professional working on this guy's audio. And th- there was mm-hmm. two faux pas in that one. First was they left his audio on while he was in the bathroom, uh, which as soon as they started hearing noise through the PA, someone wandered over and shut that off. The other <laughs> one is that the guy accidentally logged into his email while he was giving a PowerPoint presentation. And oh, wow. with, so he got an important email that was uh, um inner office related uh, about like disciplinary actions for another employee and you know how in microsoft uh um, outlook it brings up that little window at the bottom 
that shows like, you the, the summary of the, the yeah. email. So he's in the middle of giving a PowerPoint, and it makes the like you know you got a Did you it? got mail yeah. sound, and, it, and then the summary of this employee action pops up at the bottom of his PowerPoint while he's trying, he's trying <laughs> struggling really hard to get it off the screen. And you know I'm sure the guy mm-hmm. or gal or whoever it was it was intended for it was in the audience there, and he's like he's having a heart attack there. So sure something bad happened because of that. <laughs> Always oh, turn off your email when you're given a PowerPoint oh, presentation. Yeah. Uh, moving on to this last thing here on the news before we get out of here. Uh, Devin, tell me about this weird DTAP what? battery, man. What? I can DTAP battery? Um, yeah, this this was just something I come across. Uh, this is because I didn't realize this exists. Some other people may have, so this is old news for them. Uh, but if you use a camera system that uses a BPU... Uh, which does look like a Sony battery, more or less, but it is not. Understand that the MP batteries run at like 7.4 volts, and the BPU batteries run at like what your gold or V-mount batteries run at, which is 14.4 roughly. Um, So, But if you have a Sony camera system that uses these kind of batteries, or for some reason there's an accessory you have that can use DTAP and you're looking for a battery for it, um, I think these are pretty nice cost-effective batteries uh, because they, it, it's nice because they have that built-in D-tap as well as like a barrel plug. ICANN shows you using them with their monitors. Uh, if you have a monitor system that isn't compatible with this battery type, I see them being useful for things like a Blackmagic Pocket Cinema camera, which will accept like 12 volts or 14 volts or something like that, um, as well as like LED lights and lots of other things where a barrel plug running at 14 volts is going to power whatever you need. This could like be a really great small convenient solution to charge and power those devices. And I didn't realize it was a thing. I was busy looking up some stuff on DTAP for uh, running my logger's lunchbox, trying to fix some audio problems over there. And uh, the logger's lunchbox, because it's built for gold mount or V mount, they use these 14.4 volts BPU batteries. So I have two of these, not with the DTAP, but just two of them because I was like, oh, that's to power that. And uh, take care of it as well as I guess power lights and other things that run the higher voltage. And then I saw these D taps. I'm like, man, I should have just got these. Cause then I could pop them on the loggers lunchbox and have a D tap for a light or an EVF or something like that. So it's just kind of a, you know, it's, it's not terribly pricey cause BPU batteries are already pretty pricey as it is. Uh, but it's for me, I'm like, I could see lots of uses for this if I didn't already own a pair. Huh? So basically $161 gets you, what's the uh, milliamp hour range on this guy? Do you know? Uh, this one is the 60 BPU 65, which gives you 4,400. And then they also have uh, a, uh, their uh, BPU 95, which is a 6,600, which so, looks like, oh my gosh, it's so long. Holy um, crap, that thing. Okay, yeah, you guys it's gotta gigantic. see this. Uh, here's the <laughs> you here's need to this see monster. This. Look at that Look monstrosity. At Holy crap, that's huge. How do you okay? So if you're using the DTAP on this, Devin, how are you mm-hmm. securing this to your rig? Uh, if you, you know what, it's one of those where are you gonna just I, duct tape the crap out of this to like the back of your rig somewhere or what? Because, well, if if it's not being mounted into the rig like it is with my logger's lunchbox, and I'd probably just use a long strip of Velcro would hold it pretty well. Um, maybe a few ties. Understand that like that big long battery. Um, for 200 bucks, which seems really pricey, that's a 95 watt hour battery. For perspective, most of your gold mounts from Anton Bauer, your cheap gold mounts are 93 watt hours, and they cost about 280 
Yep. So here you're kind of getting the same amount of watt hours in a slightly smaller package, um, like with a D-Tap, and this will fit, you know, if you have a Sony camera that uses these BPU batteries, which I think the FS7 does. I'm not totally sure on that. So, uh, but well, if you didn't really realize this was a thing. The power input for all of those is capable of handling, I think, up to 16 volts. So On any of the Sonys? Yeah, and it's it's like the range is pretty forgiving it's like uh six or so volts all the way up to 16 so really if you could get anything in there in the 14 range or 15 right. range, you're, you're you'll in be you'll be gold so i just thought gold, this was really cool this is just me nerding out i thought this was a really cool because it's just such a small battery that comes with a d-tap i'm like that makes sense and it's not it's not crazy overpriced i know it's more than most people probably spend on their batteries for their uh cameras and whatnot There's, you know a lot of people who are dslr are like oh my gosh that much for a battery uh, but i just bought a gold mount from anton bauer for running my entire kit which is an evf uh, a big led light on top a camera audio dac interface and stuff like that so uh for me i'm like oh this is this actually isn't a bad price and I'm sure there's creative ways I'll think of in the future to use something like this that'll justify me pulling the price on it, uh, pulling the trigger on buying one of these things. So to each their own. But if you didn't know about it, I think it's cool. All right. Uh, we got two more things, maybe one more thing, and then we'll get out of here. Uh, Devin, we got one question in, and this is from uh, Monster Cameron. And Monster Cameron asks, uh, can you go over a build that's decent for 4K shooting between $1,000 and $2,000? Now, I kind of scratched my head at this for a second, and then uh, right away I jumped over to the Panasonic G7 as a good entry-level 4K camera. You got anything else besides that as a a way to build a rig up that Uh, would be under $2,000? You know, these are always difficult questions because I feel like we don't get enough information on what people are going to shoot. Exactly. Uh, I'm going to ignore the fact that you probably aren't looking for necessarily documentary work. Uh, and you're probably going to be doing commercial video, maybe a little bit of filmmaking and stuff like that, because I think that's the majority of the people who ask this question. Uh, in that case, yeah, uh, start with something like a G7. You're like, but, you know, I said 1,000 to 2,000. Well, there's a lot more to buy. Uh, get some prime lenses. Mm-hmm. Uh, they'll they'll do you really well. Something like the Panasonic 25 1.7 is less than $300. You get autofocus and you get 1.7. That's not a bad deal. And 25 is a really easy focal length to work with. That doesn't look too wide or too narrow. Yes, you have to use your feet a lot to make the frame work, but uh, that's also good practice too on composing your frame. Uh, and then lots of um, LED light panels. I would recommend, uh, what's it, uh, uh, I'm going to look it up right now. There's, I think it's from maybe newer or something like that. Uh, one of the larger LED light panels. I know everyone's like, oh, those little guys for 30 bucks. The 144 LED light panels that no, are color more than that. High. More than that. Uh, I would say the 100 or no, 500 something. Uh, anyways, there's, uh, oh, it's called like a CN something. It's like a newer light panel, CN something. Well, he's looking whatever. up that. Uh, as far as lenses go, I would r- maybe one or two primes for your shallow depth of field look, uh, and then a couple of zooms. Uh, the zooms that I would definitely recommend in that budget uh, would be the 12 to 35 millimeter uh, f2.8 from Panasonic with IS built in. Uh, that is a pretty decent all-around zoom that'll get things done for you. Uh, if you really need a lot of reach uh, and you're on a budget like this, you might want to consider one of the cheaper uh, alternative zooms that have like 150 millimeter reach that are like f4 to f5.6. Uh, otherwise, in the primes range, uh, the 
the 25 millimeter that uh, Devin mentioned is a really good one. Also, the 75 millimeter f1.8 Olympus lens is a gorgeous, gorgeous lens, and you could probably squeeze that into this budget. Uh, as far as audio goes, I would definitely recommend getting at least one lower priced lav kit if you can afford it, as well as a starter microphone of some kind. Uh, and possibly an XLR audio adapter system. You could go with my iRig pre-hack if you're really cutting corners. Uh, <laughs> uh, also, a Beach yeah, Tech I or Juice Link. I would might say a Rode VideoMic Pro, which comes in at maybe 250 230 yeah. something like that, is a decent starting shotgun mic. Uh, it's not brilliant, but you know we're just getting started here. Uh, right here, I've got pulled up for $530. It's temporarily out of stock, but there is prime shipping on it. Um for an LED light kit from newer that gets you two large LED panels. No, they aren't color changing, but what a lot of people don't realize is color changing LEDs have half the power of a system that doesn't have color changing LEDs because half of those LEDs are dedicated to one color and then half to the other color. So in this situation, you get a lot of punch out of these things. Uh, they use uh, basic Sony MP batteries, which I would recommend like six of those from Wasabi, which they run about 40 a piece. Um, so that kind of gets most of your lighting squared away. Like there isn't a whole lot, the more you get into lighting, the more you're like, oh, I want to do all this crazy stuff with lighting and you'll buy more lights and you'll go crazy with it. But for getting started with interview, commercial work and stuff like that, two big soft LEDs allow you to get whatever rim light you want to get whatever, uh, you know, key light you want. You can maybe use one as a fill too, with a little bit of diffusion, um, as well as a reflector. You need a reflector for like 25 bucks. This sounds like a ton of crap. And you notice how we only spent 500 on our camera. Yes, when you are putting together a $2,000 kit, your camera is going to be one-fourth of that price yeah. if you want to create good images because all these LED lights used well along with really good, uh, you know, with a decent audio setup like a Rode wireless filmmaking kit or maybe some of the cheaper wireless kits that we've shown with a decent mic um, like the JK mics that DJs recommended before and things like that. You put all that together and you'll come up with a really good looking video and with learning and skills and, you know, all that kind of stuff and uh, trying different stuff out. You can make really impressive videos with all of this gear um, as opposed to like, I don't know, going out and getting an FS5. It's like, yeah, the, the FS5, you know, sure, it well, looks that great. that would put the, you way above your uh, $2,000 limit. Sure. Though. Well, I'm trying to think what else, because I guess the GH4 is like $1,000. Uh, but, but if you go if, with the GH4, that $1,000 right there eats up half your budget. Uh, yeah. The G7 is a, a more affordable 4K camera. That leaves you like $500, maybe $700 for lenses. Mm -hmm. uh, that leaves you about uh 400 bucks maybe 500 bucks for lighting and uh yeah and lighting and then another four or 500 bucks for your audio kit and i would say it's unrealistic to think that you could get a complete setup for under a thousand dollars uh but yeah. uh, under two thousand dollars it is more realistic uh, and this isn't even considering things like I don't know, a tripod or, uh, you know, a mm -hmm. monopod or cables that you may need to attach these things or extra batteries. Uh, you start throwing those things in and you may have to trim the fat in one location or another. And on the lighting kits, uh, while the LED kits are nice and they're super compact and they're battery powered, I, I might also say at that budget, maybe a really lower priced uh, Cowboy Studios uh, uh, three piece lighting set that uses CFLs for like 150 to 200 dollars might be a better starting kit for sure for yeah, lighting. I could agree with that, and that way you can use that money for 
uh, tripod stands, uh, mounts, mm-hmm. you know, any of the other little miscellaneous items that you'd need. Uh, plus, the lav kit and a good microphone will really make a difference in your filming, even if you uh, skimp on a few of your lenses. So, you know, f- there are like yeah. the uh, Ceramonic RX or UW Mic 10 RX units, 249 for a, a UHF system. Or if you can find, uh, I think the Pro uh, Pro D T from Asden is a Wi-Fi based lav kit for about 180 bucks. Uh, that also works pretty decently. And then a good microphone. Uh, I always recommend to people starting out on a budget, the Audio-Technica 4073. If you can find that used on eBay for around 300 bucks, it is an excellent starting boom mic uh, or a finishing boom mic, depending on what kind of work you use. Uh, but you get any cr- crazier than that, uh, you're going to get into eating up pretty much all your budget with mics or audio. Yeah, yeah, it's it's easy to go too far in one category, but I think the overall message we're making here is like, look, you mentioned 4K, and that's the only defining factor you said about your kit, not what you're going to go shoot, and that's kind of the wrong idea Um, because 4K as well as taking up a lot of space. I mean, unless you're shooting with like you know the the G7 or the uh, GH4, 4K isn't that crazy compared to like a C300 where it's like a 400 megabit codec. Um, shooting, shooting 4k is a lot on your memory. It's a lot on your machine. It's a lot to render. Um, you know, and people still don't have 4k TVs or 4k computers or 4k, you know, the only thing that's 4k is like a few things on Netflix. It's still early. Uh, so 4k is great. And, but you saying 4k makes me think that your focus should be like lighting. Like it it sounds so simple, but like, uh, there's so much you can do with that kit uh, as opposed to if you spend a bunch of money on a camera. And I would totally recommend a tripod. Uh, one thing I'd say is forget handheld. Just don't do handheld when you're starting out because a well-looking tripod shot is like never a bad thing. But handheld can very easily be a bad thing. Uh, I would say handheld's one of those things that you experiment and you try to do and maybe you need rigging or extra weight or maybe you just need to practice holding the camera steady or maybe you really need to use image stabilization and you don't have lenses that do that. There's a lot of reasons that handheld is kind of like this, you know, you got to figure out what works for you. A tripod, on the other hand, with a well-composed frame will always look good. There's like, if if it's not moving, like any cheap tripod that doesn't move in the wind is going to get you a good shot as long as you got the rest of your stuff taken care of, lighting, uh, subjects, foreground, background, and all that kind of stuff. So those are the things you should be focusing on, not the 4K part, not the you know tech part or anything like that, or how fancy the camera is or dynamic range or any of that stuff. Ignore all those stupid facts because, uh, heck, I've seen some amazing stuff done with the cheapest cameras and one tiny little you know LED off of a cell phone. Uh, so when it comes to telling your stories and things like that, uh, I don't know. It's just camera tech should be the last thing you worry about. We're nerds and we nerd out about it and we use this stuff a lot. So we love talking about it. Uh, so it may feel like it's the most important thing in the world when it comes to creating your image. Uh, but really your background, your framing, your composition, your lighting, especially lighting is such a complicated and intricate subject when it comes to filmmaking that that should be kind of what you focus on. And, you know, uh, you come here to hear us geek out about cameras and talk about cheap prices on gear and stuff like that uh, because it's fun. But uh, that's, I think that should be your focus. So hopefully that kind of answers your question, uh, Monster Cameron, uh, about what you should be looking for with your 4K. Uh, that's a great recommendation. 
Because really, you could get started at 4K for that price. I would say the other thing is buy used, man. Because oh, absolutely. Um, if you if you look for light kits on eBay, a lot of times you can buy secondhand uh, CFL light kits for mm-hmm. you know 80 bucks, 70 bucks, and that'll give you like three or four light stands, uh, three or four diffusers with the the forehead sockets and all that that kind of stuff for really cheap. Uh, same thing with the uh, tripods. You can buy uh manfrotto 501 heads and 503 heads on ebay with mm-hmm. sticks like the the 190 level xb series sticks for yeah. like 180 bucks 160 bucks used and that would normally set you back around five or six hundred dollars so i mean those sorts of things can really help save you some money and same with lenses you go out and buy a brand new lens i know a lot of people cringe that uh i shop on the used market for my camera kit <laughs> but it it saves me two or three hundred dollars a pop buying these uh, lenses, these bodies, and so on when I'm changing out gear on a regular basis. And uh, that savings means that when I go back to resell it, I'm not eating the drive it off the parking lot price of a new car right. on my lenses. And it, that helps out. That keeps my budget pretty well balanced. Uh, don't don't strive for the best gear to begin with. Strive for the best product at the end is i guess where we're absolutely going. all right i couldn't agree more on that note we're about out of time devin where can people find you uh you can just find me on twitter at devo cut uh throw me any kind of crazy questions you want and of I course i won't be too mean <laughs> <laughs> and of course guys you can find the show on soundcloud itunes anywhere podcasts are distributed be sure to rate like and subscribe uh, leave your questions in the youtube channel section and help us out with the direction of the show if you see a news article you see something you want Devin and i to talk about be sure to post that in the comment section of the youtube videos and i will try and add it to the show nuts thanks did i say show nuts I think I said show nuts. It's the show notes, not the donuts. (laughs) I think I have donuts on my mind. On that note, guys, we'll see you next time on another episode of DSLR Film Noob 